0: today's episode of HealthTree Podcast for AML, a podcast that connects patients with acute myeloid leukemia researchers. I'm your host, Kara Thaman. We'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Bristol Myers Squibb, for their support of this HealthTree Podcast for AML episode. Before we get started with today's show, I'd like to mention an upcoming event that we will be hosting. On Saturday, September 17th at 10 a.m. Eastern, we will be hosting a virtual HealthTree Roundtable for AML event titled, Decision-Making in AML, What's Next If You Relapse? We have invited four top AML experts, Drs. Eunice Wang and Amanda Prespoluski from Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, Dr. Lourdes Mendez from Yale Cancer Center, and Dr. Jane Leesbeld from the University of Rochester. Our experts will discuss MRD status, relapse after transplant, clinical trials after relapse, and how to manage the fear of potential relapse. We will hear from the experts on each topic and there will be a Q&A session at the end. We hope you will join us for this informative discussion. If you can't attend live, we encourage you to still register as the recording will be sent out after the event to everyone who registers. You can register for all of our events by visiting our website healthtree.org slash AML slash community slash As a reminder for today's show, if you have joined us online and would like to be able to ask Dr. Stein a question during our Q&A period at the end, you will need to call in via telephone to 515-602-9728 and press 1 on your keypad when you are ready to ask your question. And now on to our show today. IDH mutations occur in approximately 20% of adult AML patients. There are two IDH mutations, IDH1 and IDH2, with IDH2 being the more common of the two. In recent years, small molecule inhibitors or IDH inhibitors have been developed and approved for the treatment of IDH mutant AML. There are two IDH inhibitors that are currently approved for use, Ivosidenib or Tibsobo, and enacitinib, or ADIFA, are approved to treat IDH1 and IDH2 mutations, respectively. In May 2022, ivosidenib received FDA approval for use in combination with azacitidine in newly diagnosed patients aged 75 years or older. Dr. Aton Stein is here with us today to talk about the current treatment options for IDH mutations and discuss the newly approved combination of ivosidenib plus azacitidine. We will also hear from Dr. Stein about what other drugs there are in development to target IDH mutations and how the treatment of IDH1 and IDH2 mutant AML could change moving forward. We are so happy to have you here with us today, Dr. Stein, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us. Before we get Great, started... Thank you so much for having love... me. Thank you. And I'd love to provide just an introduction for you. Dr. Stein. Dr. Stein is an Assistant Attending Physician, Clinical Investigator, and Director of the Program for Drug Development in Leukemia on the Leukemia Service at Memorial Sloan-Kettering Cancer Center. Dr. Stein specializes in caring for patients with acute and chronic leukemias, myelodysplastic syndrome, and myeloproliferative neoplasms. He is the principal investigator on a wide variety of clinical trials in AML and is working to develop new therapies, such as small molecule inhibitors, that can more effectively target AML. Dr. Stein led the clinical studies of the IDH1 inhibitor Ivosidenib and the IDH2 inhibitor Enasidenib in patients with relapse and refractory AML that led to their FDA approvals in 2017 and 2018. Dr. Stein's work has been published in many prestigious journals, and we are honored to have him on the show with us today. Welcome, Dr. Stein. Thanks for being here with us today.
1: Great. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Okay, let's go ahead and jump into our discussion for today. Can you just give us a summary of what the IDH1 and IDH2 mutations are and maybe how they're different? And does one carry a higher risk profile than the other?
1: Yeah, so that's a really good question. And and as was mentioned in the introduction, um, when a patient develops acute myeloid leukemia, there is always, almost always going to be some mutation um, in the bone marrow that has developed as the patient has, you know, um, gotten older that is going to contribute or lead to the development of their disease. So IDH1 and IDH2 mutations um, they're two different mutations, um, but they are together probably the second most common abnormality or mutation that is seen in patients with uh, AML. IDH2 mutations occur in about 15 to 20% of patients with AML, and IDH1 mutations occur in about 10 to 15% of patients with AML. You know, what's interesting is that the difference between IDH1 and IDH2 really has to do – so IDH1 and IDH2 are enzymes. That when they're not mutated, work to help um, generate energy for cellular processes. Um, and the difference between IDH1 and IDH2 are simply where those enzymes are located within the cell. So um, one of the mutations is located within the mitochondria, which is a type of a type of, um, of, um, uh, a type of uh, thing that is found within the cell, and then the other. Um, is found within uh, the cytoplasm, which is the major goop that's inside a cell. Um, The last thing I'm going to say is that when you have these mutations, what ends up happening is that the cell, instead of maturing normally to become a healthy infection-fighting cell, it gets stuck as a blast. So you may know that in in a person without leukemia, the normal progression of events is that you have this uh, immature blood cell that is born in the bone marrow. It goes through very uh, various um, levels of uh, growing up Um, and when it's all grown up, it becomes a a neutrophil and it goes out into the bloodstream to fight infections. And when you have um, acute myeloid leukemia, that growing up process doesn't occur normally. And the the way I tell my patients is that um, those cells get stuck as teenagers And those teenagers are called blasts. And you can imagine if you've got too many teenagers in your house, um, it's going to wreak havoc. And and that's what these blasts do. So the idea is that um, by targeting IDH1 and IDH2, it it sort of gets those teenagers, those teenage blasts, to to grow up and become responsible adults that can then go out and fight infections as neutrophils.
0: I, I like that analogy. I hadn't heard uh, the teenager analogy before, so that that is a good uh, explanation in helping understand the blast. Um, is there a typical demographic for patients that develop IDH mutations, and also do they do they typically occur with other mutations?
1: Yeah. So um, there there is not a typical demographic but there are a couple of demographic comments that can be made. The most important one is that IDH mutations increase in frequency as patients age or as adults age. So um, it is very uncommon to find IDH mutation in IDH mutations in younger patients with acute myeloid leukemia and it is more common to find them among 60, 70, 80 year olds. Um, Now IDH mutations rarely occur alone. So it's pretty unusual that if you're diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia, your doctor is gonna say to you, the only thing we found is this mutation in IDH1 or IDH2. These mutations tend to co-occur with other mutations and the spectrum of which other mutations they co-occur with differs a little bit between IDH1 and IDH2. However, I think in general what you can say is that these mutations co-occur with mutations in a gene called uh, NPM1 or nucleophosmin, they can co-occur with a gene called FLT3, for which we have another targeted therapy that targets FLT3 mutations. And they also tend to co-occur with um, a group of mutations called SRSF2 mutations, um, which for which we're also developing targeted therapies. So, so the the point of telling you all that is that, you know, I think one of the things that's happening or going to happen in the next, you know, one to three years for patients with AML is we're not only gonna be targeting one mutation because we know that targeting one mutation probably isn't gonna be enough to permanently cure a patient, Um, but what we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be targeting multiple mutations. So we'll be taking multiple drugs that target different pathways and different mutations in patients with AML and put those drugs together, um, hopefully so that uh, we can cure the disease with these small molecules um, inhibitors alone and not have to resort to things like intensive chemotherapy, hmm.
0: so I guess would one of the the challenges be with the multiple drugs just being the the avoiding sort of the toxicities of more drugs?
1: yeah, yeah, that's always a concern, so whenever you 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 add um you start taking more more pills uh, You know, you worry that you're going to get more side effects. The the good thing about um, at least the IDH inhibitors is that the side effect profile is very, very um, favorable. So if you compare IDH inhibitors and other small molecule inhibitors, like FLIP3 inhibitors that are already approved to um, chemotherapy, I mean, the side effects are, are, are worlds apart. Um, when I prescribe an IDH inhibitor for my patients, you know, they, everyone asks me, of course, you know, what are the, what are the most common side effects? And, and the truth is that the most common side effect is not to have a side effect. So, you know, the vast majority of my patients have no side effects when they're taking these medications. You know, of course, all medications can have, have some side effects, but because it's most common that patients don't have any side effects, it, 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 allows, um, it, it really allows the possibility that you really can combine these agents with other agents fairly safely. That's
0: great, okay. And can you talk us through sort of what the current treatment options are for patients with IDH1 and IDH2 mutations?
1: Yeah, so, so um, why don't we just talk about, uh, at the beginning, for patients with relapsed and refractory acute myeloid leukemia, because I think we'll probably get into Newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia. A little bit uh, later in the conversation. So for patients with okay. relapsed and refractory acute myeloid leukemia, um, there are there is a targeted inhibitor of IDH1 that is approved by the FDA called Ivosidenib. There is a different targeted inhibitor of IDH2 that is approved by the FDA called Enasidenib. Um, These drugs are, as we talked about, potent targeted therapies against um, the mutant uh, enzyme, the mutant protein. In the relapsed and refractory setting, they both really work exceptionally well in the sense that the overall response rate um, is about 40%. So about 40% of patients who get either the IDH1 inhibitor or the IDH2 inhibitor um, will go into some sort of remission. And if you look at the rate of complete remission, that rate of complete remission um, is about 20 to 30%, depending on whether um, we're talking about NSIDNIB, the IDH2 inhibitor, or ivosidenib, the IDH1 inhibitor. Now, but the good thing is that, as I mentioned a second ago, you know, the other treatment options for patients with relapse and refractory AML up until the time we had IDH inhibitors was basically giving people um, chemotherapy if they, if they were young enough to handle it. And that chemotherapy, the remission rates of chemotherapy were were significantly lower than what I just described as the IDH inhibitors. And, and as everyone on the call likely knows, comes with, you know, major side effects that, that, that no one wants to have. It usually requires a hospitalization. I mean, in, in terms of quality of life and, and the side effects that, that people experience, um, getting these IDH inhibitors for relapsed and refractory disease um, is, is, you know, worlds better than, than, than getting chemotherapy. And the IDH inhibitors are oral therapies, right? So, um, you know, you write a prescription, the patient can go home and they can take the medication at home and it's given uh, once a day. Um, you know, I think the, the one thing that has been slightly disappointing is, um, you know, while the IDH inhibitors have these high remission rates and while we have some patients um, who can do really well for a long period of time, it's more common that the IDH inhibitor will, will work for a period of time, usually maybe six months to a year, um, and then maybe we'll, we'll stop working. Having said that, just a second ago, I told you that um, they can work for a long period of time. I, I have one patient who I talk about all the time who was on the original uh, phase one study of the IDH1 inhibitor, nib and I just saw her um, yes uh, Monday um, via telemedicine she has been on uh, the treatment for now eight years, eight or nine years, um, and, you know, is probably uh, functionally cured of her leukemia just with the IDH1 inhibitor. So, um, so there are these patients who are super responders and do fantastically well. We don't really understand why some patients do so much better than other patients, um, but, but mm-hmm. that's what leads to the excitement with the use of these targeted therapies.
0: And can I ask how old that patient is?
1: Yeah, so she is now 87. So when I started treating okay. her, she was 77, and now she's 87 or 88. Her her leukemia is, is uh, okay. I mean, really, it, it's like the least of her issues. It's like she's taking a blood pressure medication when she takes the uh, ibocidinib.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, can you... Talk about the trials for the initial approval of ibocidinib and how ibocidinib has impacted the outcomes for AML patients. Um, I mean, you sort of got into yeah. that a little bit, but you can talk about the trials a little bit.
1: Yeah, so we talked about the relapse and refractory patients with um, both ibocidinib mm-hmm. and endocidinib. So whenever you have a drug that works really well, patients who have... Um, Relapse leukemia, you know, you don't want to wait to give your best drug to a patient who's relapsed. You want to keep them from relapsing. Um, so that's why there were a couple of different studies that were done, one, one of which I'll just touch upon very briefly, and then the other one, which is the more important one. So one study was there was a small study that was done where for patients with IDH1 mutations, ivosidenib as, as a monotherapy, as a single agent, was given to patients with newly diagnosed um, Acute myeloid leukemia with an IDH1 mutation, as a single agent, ivosidenib leads to rates of um, complete remission in the range of 40 to, or, or the overall response rate, not just complete remission, the overall response rate is in the range of 40 to 50 percent. So higher than when you give it for patients with relapsed and refractory disease. So ivosidenib, as a monotherapy, as a single agent, was actually approved by the FDA for newly diagnosed AML with an IDH1 mutation in patients older than 75 years old. However, you know, the standard of care up until recently for patients with newly diagnosed AML who were 75 or older was to give them a drug called azacitidine, a, a type of drug called a hypomethylating agent. There's a, there's a sister drug called decitabine that's also used, which is very, very similar. So either giving azacitidine or decitabine was the standard of care for newly diagnosed AML patients, regardless of what mutation they had. They had an IDH, one mutation, IDH, two mutation, whatever mutation they had. Older than 75 years old, couldn't get intense chemotherapy. The standard of care was to give uh, azacitidine. And the use of azacitidine in patients with newly diagnosed AML led to a complete remission rate in the range of 20%. Okay, so when you've got a a therapy that is the standard of care for newly diagnosed patients with AML, and you have a new therapy that seems to be good for patients with newly diagnosed AML, the question we ask is, well, what happens if you put these two therapies together? And that's what was done as part of a large randomized clinical trial called the Agile trial. It was a large clinical trial where patients with IDH1 mutations exclusively with newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia were randomized. That is, a computer flipped a coin and said 50% of the patients are going to get azacitidine with the IDH1 inhibitor, ivosidenib, and 50% of the patients are going to get azacitidine with a placebo. Patients aren't going to know whether they're on placebo or, um, or ivosidenib, and we're going to follow these patients and see how they do. Um, and The results of that trial uh, were, were actually quite dramatic. They were dramatic in the sense that the rate of remission when giving patients ibocidinib with azacitidine um, was significantly higher than when patients got azacitidine with placebo. Um, the rates of remission are in the range of 60 to 70% in patients who get ibocidinib with azacitidine compared to only about 10 to 20% in patients who got azacitidine with placebo. But the, the maybe the more important data is that if you look at the overall survival, the median overall survival, median means that 50% of patients um, at the time point I'm going to tell you are still alive. So the median overall survival in patients who got nib with azacitidine was just about two years, while the median overall survival of the patients who got azacitidine with placebo was only about nine to ten months. Um, And because of that, you know, in these clinical trials, there are safety looks at the trial built in. So there's a committee that looked at the trial, even though the trial wasn't over yet, and said, hey, um, you know, this study looks like the patients who are getting azacitidine nivacidinib is dramatically better than the patients who are getting azacitidine. It's not ethical to keep enrolling patients on a trial where half of them are just gonna get azacitidine because that looks like it's inferior therapy. We're gonna stop the trial early. We're gonna unblind everyone. And we're going to say, for now, the standard of care has now become that IDH1 mutant patients, um, at least as part of this trial, should only get azacitidine and ivosidenib. They should not get azacitidine monotherapy. So, again, in, in summary, you know, dramatic results where the combination of azacitidine and ivosidenib for IDH1 mutant patients is really dramatically better, both in terms of remission rate and in terms of overall survival, compared to azacitidine alone. okay now
0: how does but aren't you also looking at the regimen of azacitidine and benetoclax and in, in the scenario of 75 years and older patients
1: right so this so this is where it gets complicated <laughs> okay so <laughs> i know uh, I, I don't want to overcomplicate this but well it's okay it's good to complicate it okay so so yeah. let's back up to the beginning of the AGILE trial, right? So the AGILE trial is azacitidine-ivacidinib versus azacitidine. That trial starts in, I forget what year, let's say 2017 and 2018. While that trial is running, there is a new treatment for acute myeloid leukemia that is approved by the FDA, which is the combination of azacitidine and a drug called venetoclax. Many of you may have been on this regimen or, or have heard about this regimen. So that then becomes the new standard of care for patients who have newly diagnosed AML, whether they have an IDH1 mutation or have some other mutation, whatever mutation they have. So the question becomes, what do you do then with the agile trial, right? You've already started a trial where patients are enrolling um, and they're getting either azacitidine and ivosidenib or azacitidine and placebo. And, and I think the way Um, um, the people who wrote the agile trial thought about it was that most of the trial was being enrolled in countries where patients did not have access to venetoclax, and therefore they felt like they could continue the trial going because in these countries, patients, you know, they couldn't get venetoclax. There was no mechanism by which they could get it, and they kept the trial going. But because azacitidine and venetoclax is now a standard of care for patients with newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia, and it leads to very good outcomes in patients with newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia, whether they have an IDH1 mutation or whether they don't have an IDH1 mutation. The question becomes, what is better for a patient? Is it better for a newly diagnosed IDH1 mutation, a patient with a newly diagnosed AML with an IDH1 mutation, to receive azacitidine and the IDH1 inhibitor ivosidenib, or is it better for them to receive azacitidine and this drug venetoclax? We don't know the answer to that question yet. There is a clinical trial that is being started within the next year that is going to try to answer that question by randomizing patients to receive either azacitidine and ivosidenib, or to receive azacitidine and venetoclax. The other thing we don't know and why medicine is sort of a humbling business is that well, maybe you can start a patient on azacitidine and ibocidinib, and then if um, they relapse, maybe then you can switch to azacitidine and venetoclax. Or maybe you can start a patient on azocytidine and venetoclax, and if they relapse, you can switch them to azacitidine and ibocidinib. Or maybe you should start them on all three at once. Um, and, and these are the kinds of questions that are going to be answered in clinical trials, you know, over the next one to three years. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I'm curious, um, just to give everyone an idea of the timeline for the clinical trial uh, to the for the approval of this use of ibocytinib, what was the time frame from the start of the clinical trial to FDA approval,
1: um, say, for the Agile trial? That's a good question. Um, I think it was probably about four years. It wasn't that long, three or four years. I think the trial probably started okay. in 2018, 2019. I don't remember exactly, but I don't think it was longer than three or four years. So it was relatively quick. I mean, in, in, the, I mean, in the in the context of it's not quick in real life, but in, in the context of clinical mm-hmm. trials, that is actually relatively quick.
0: Mm-hmm. So in your day-to-day sort of practice, how are you approaching these patients <laughs> since it's sort of so it seems to be, so what what do you do? How do you decide?
1: Yeah, right, so that's the problem. So how do you decide when you have a patient sitting in front of you, whether they should get azacitidine and venetoclax or azacitidine and ivacidine if they've got an IDH1 mutation? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's the theoretical and then there's the practical. So theoretically, in a perfect world, I would start my patients on azacitidine and ivocidinib. The reason being that that clinical trial, the Agile trial, which we talked about, of azacitidine and ivocidinib, was done specifically in patients with IDH1 mutations. So it was a trial just for that genetic subset. So I feel relatively comfortable that the the results that I told you about and that have been published You know are really um, you know are true that that those results are going to be reproducible in the patients that I treat. In the patients who got azacitidine and venetoclax, although it's it's a fantastic treatment, um, that trial was done in a more general population, which included IDH1 mutant patients. It wasn't a trial specifically for IDH1 mutant patients, so uh, that's the reason because it wasn't specifically for IDH1 mutant patients um i i in a in a in my theoretical perfect world i would probably start them on aza Ivacid, nip first now there's the theoretical and then there's the reality so the reality is that um the issue with um with um with the agile trial is that you need to wait for the results of idh1 mutational testing before you can, you know, start a patient on azacitidine and nivacidinib, right? Because you need to know whether they've got an IDH1 mutation. With venetoclax, you don't need to wait, right? You can give anyone venetoclax, whatever mutations they have. And sometimes it can take, you know, a week or 10 days for that IDH1 mutational testing to come back. And then, um, for those of you who've taken any small molecule inhibitors, it's not, it's not as easy as, you know, writing a prescription to, to Walgreens or Duane Reed. Um, You know, you have to write a prescription to a specialty pharmacy. The specialty pharmacy then sends you um, a piece of paper that says you need to fill out a prior authorization. You send it back to the specialty pharmacy, who then approves it. But then they say to you, you know what, okay, the drug is approved, but your patient's copayment is going to be $5,000. And, you know, most people in the world can't afford that. Um, So then you have to sort of scramble around and try to figure out how to get a patient copayment assistance. And that whole process can take longer than patients are usually comfortable waiting. I mean, I might be comfortable waiting as a doctor, but, but as you know, as a patient, you know, you've just been diagnosed with cancer and and your doctor's saying to you, um, okay, you've got cancer, but I want you to wait three weeks to get these results. And most people are like, no, I, you know, even, even though you're telling me it's going to be okay. Um, you know, I, I don't want to have cancer in my body. I want to get started as soon as possible. So for practical reasons, we often end up starting azacitidine and venetoclax, even though, in a perfect world, that's not what that's not what I would do. So, if I could get the results of my mutational testing back within, you know, like 48 hours, and know whether the patient had an IDH1 mutation or not, and/or if I could then write a prescription and get that prescription filled within another 48 hours with the copayment assistance, I would I would, um, you know, I I'd advise my patients strongly to wait for the for the to come through. But in the absence of that, I've been starting a lot of patients of azacitidine on azacitidine and venetoclax.
0: Well, and I think I read somewhere that perhaps the azacitidine venetoclax can be a, is a slightly more intense regimen, so it might have more side effects. Is that the case? Uh, um
1: yeah. So it's a good question. I mean, certainly the combination of azacitidine and venetoclax can cause lower, will, will lower the blood counts more um, than the combination of azacitidine and ivocidinib. Um So all else being equal, that is something that you would, that you would look at. You'll probably need more transfusions if you're getting azacitidine and venetoclax. Um, you know, in a, where I practice at Memorial Sloan Kettering, we, we kind of, and I think at other large hospitals and, and medical centers, you know, we have the ability to monitor patients pretty closely and give them transfusions very frequently. So it's, it's less of an issue, but I think in places that might not have, you know, easy access or reliable access or quick access to a blood bank um, or for patients who live, you know, very far away from the hospital, um, where it's a real, a real um, burden to get back and forth to a hospital giving a combination like azacidinib and which which um you know might require fewer transfusions and hospital visits might be the preferred thing to do so so when i gave you my my little spiel a second ago that that was that was uh, specifically talking about the patients that i see in new york city where you know they've got relatively easy access to to getting into the city and to, and to um, And to being treated, but but that might be different um, for different locations within the world or within this country um, and different practices. That's
0: that's good information to have. One thing I wanted to ask about was, because I don't want to ignore the IDH2, do you think uh, that there's going to be an approval of... And acidinib combination with azacitidine coming as well. Uh, is the no. data as encouraging for for IDH2 mutations with enasidenib?
1: Um, I don't think there's going to be approval. I'll tell you why. So there was a, a phase okay. two trial that that was similar to the Agile trial, where patients were randomized to enasidenib with azacitidine or azacitidine alone. This is not a placebo-controlled trial. It was a small trial of only 100 patients. Um, there were some methodological – not methodological. Maybe it was a little bit underpowered from a statistical point of view. Um, but in that trial, there was no difference in overall survival between the patients who got azacitidine and acetinib or azacitidine placebo. Now, it could be if you did a large randomized phase 3 trial that um, – you know, placebo control that you would get a similar outcome um, as you did with the Agile trial. The, the problem is that w- with the data that's available, which is that phase two trial, it does not look like enasidenib and azacitidine is better than azacitidine monotherapy. And and while I think one should do a large randomized phase three trial because I think the result might be different in a large randomized phase three trial, um, you know that requires. Um, the, the issue is that it requires essentially um, a lot, an investment of a lot of money uh, for a result that might be, um, you know, that you might not get, that you might not see a benefit. So I, I suspect that um, that we're not going to see that randomized phase three trial. I mean, I hope we do, but I suspect we're not, and therefore I don't think the combination of enoxacinib and ezetimibe is going to get. And FDA approval. Okay.
0: Uh, we briefly touched on the side effects of ivercetinib, and it sounds like they're, they're minimal side effects, which is good. But I've read about uh, differentiation syndrome, and can you talk about that? Um, and is there anything that can be prophylactically given to avoid it? Um, and then also if someone is taking it at, and you know, they're at home, say, taking it, if a patient is taking it, is there anything they can look out for, uh, if they're taking it at home, signs and symptoms?
1: Yeah. So, so let me define differentiation syndrome first, and we have to go back to the analogy I used with, with the, with the blast being teenagers that, that won't grow up. So, um, as, uh. So so, let's say you've got these blasts, they're, they're the teenagers in the analogy, and you're, now you're giving these blasts, these blasts with, with IDH mutations or an IDH1 mutation, a drug that's gonna cause them to start growing up. That process of going from a blast to a mature neutrophil or going from a teenager to an adult is called differentiation, okay? And as those blasts are maturing and turning into adults because they're being sort of prodded along by the IDH inhibitor, they, um, I guess the, the best way, the analogy is, you know, sometimes your kids don't want to grow up, right? They want to remain teenagers uh, for a long time because then they don't have any responsibility. I, I say this having my own teenagers. Um, and, uh, and um, you know, and they kick and scream, right? They don't want to grow up. They don't want to, you know, they don't want to do this. They don't want to take this responsibility. So the blasts do a similar thing. The blasts start kicking and screaming as they're starting to, to grow up into mature neutrophils. And what they do when they kick and scream is that they release certain substances as they're maturing that can cause um, fluid accumulation in the body. So that doesn't sound too bad, but the problem is that when you get fluid accumulation in places like your lungs, it can make it difficult to breathe. Um, And that is what differentiation syndrome is. Differentiation syndrome is these blasts sort of not behaving nicely and kicking and screaming. They don't want to become adults, adult neutrophils and releasing substances that cause fluid buildup in the body, specifically in the lungs, which in, in its most severe form can cause, you know, profound shortness of breath and, and you know, um, on oxygen or an intensive care unit. The good thing is, is that there's an easy way to calm down these blasts as they're differentiating, if they develop differentiation syndrome, and that is by giving um, the patient steroids. So when you give the patient steroids, it calms down the blast, they stop releasing these substances, and the differentiation syndrome goes away. So there is no prophylactic treatment that we give to prevent differentiation syndrome when we give IDH inhibitors. However, um, if you're a patient who's taking an IDH inhibitor, and you know and you're at home and, and you start noticing that, you know, it used to be that you, that you could walk up your front steps to get into your house without getting short of breath, and now all of a sudden, walking up your front steps and it's the third step, you gotta stop and you've got to, you gotta know, catch your breath um, or you're becoming increasingly short of breath or you develop a new cough or you develop swelling in your legs that wasn't there previously. That would be the kind of thing that I would say you should call your doctor immediately. It doesn't mean that you have differentiation syndrome, but it means you could. And the one thing you don't wanna do is you don't wanna let differentiation syndrome uh, wait around. It's so easy to treat with steroids, but if it's not treated, it can get really bad really quickly. Um, so the message for a patient would be if you're on an IDH inhibitor and you develop um, shortness of breath, you develop symptoms of fluid accumulation, um, don't wait till the next doctor's visit. Call your doctor right away um, and say, hey, I'm, I'm having these symptoms. Is it possible I have differentiation syndrome? The doctor will think, um, you know, that you're very, very well educated because you know what differentiation syndrome is. Um, and, uh, and then let them guide you. Let them tell you what to do. Okay.
0: Okay, and then we, you you kind of started to touch on it a little bit. I wanted to just go back to it. We talked about that at some point there may be, and there's, I think, a trial being done right now on azacitidine plus phenetoclax plus a, plus a targeted agent like azacitinib, which they call triplets. Um, is there any preliminary data from this trial as of yet
1: there there is so so there have been that's a trial being done um out of the md anderson cancer center in texas in houston Um, and there's data that shows that the combination the triplet combination works works really well you know you get very very high rates of of remission i think the issue with those trials is that they're not randomized so you don't really it's very hard to tell whether it's better than giving just the doublet of Aza-Ivo or of aza Venetoclax. And the reason that's important is because, um, and the reason I would say that to a doctor not to just combine all three drugs together um, um, outside of a clinical trial is because we, we really don't know whether that's better than just the two-drug combination. And um, the three-drug combination leads to an immense increase in cost, right? So, you know, the cost of a drug like mm-hmm. ivacidinib and the cost of a drug like venetoclax is, is quite high, not only um, you know on a personal level to to the patient, but um, especially if they've got high co-pays, But also sort of like on a societal level, um, where insurance companies are paying for you know um, all these very expensive drugs, um, and and that you know affects all of us because then all of our insurance rates go up. Um, so I think in the absence of a really clear data that it's better than the doublet. I would not do it um, sort of off trial. Um, Having said that, I think that trial is important and I'm hoping there's gonna be a randomized trial that's gonna answer the question of whether the triplet or the doublet is is a better approach.
0: Right. Okay, and you mentioned um, the blood counts um, and sort of like weighing weighing the options of ivacitonib plus azacitidine versus azacitidine plus venetoclax. Um, and I was listening to a talk uh, that Dr. Harry Urba uh, from Duke was moderating, and I guess uh, it was Courtney DiNardo was speaking of, from an ASH conference. She's from Andy Anderson, as you know, and she was talking about how the the blood counts immediately went up instead of down which distinguishes it from the the azacytidine plus remetezox regimen the azacytidine avacinarib distinguishes it um from the aza then regimen that is um how I'm curious how that is that the blood counts go up um cuz that 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 seems to be like counterintuitive to me um to, i was just wondering how that works i mean that seems like that would be a big strong case for using the ibocytinib plus azacitidine
1: yeah so i think the counts go up because the ibocytinib is um is a differentiation agent and it has a differentiation agent um it doesn't kill those cells It's like we talked about it causes them to mature and to increase so i think that's why the the you know the blood counts might go up initially you know i think in terms of the case of what to use i think at the end of the day the most important thing is, is the length of overall survival right so let's say i told you mm-hmm. that um azacitidine and venetoclax so this is not true but i'm going to make this up let's say and venetoclax led to an overall survival of 15 years, and ivocidinib and led to an overall survival of two years, right? Even if the blood counts went up with ivocidinib and azacitidine, you still use azacitidine and benetoclax because and, and vice versa. If it was 15 years for IvoASA and two years for azacitidine, it wouldn't really matter what the side effects were, because at the end of the day, um, people are going to live longer um, with, uh, with the azacitidine and whatever other, you know, Whatever, either Ven or Ivo, depending on on what it is. So I, I would say that I, I wouldn't make. I, I think that the the what we really need is we need a trial that's going to tell us which one which one leads to an increased overall survival, um, and then that's it. Now, if they're equivalent, let's say the overall survival between Ivo AZA, and venasa is equivalent, well, if that's the case, then I, I completely agree. Then you, would, then you would pick the drug or you would pick the combination that has fewer side effects. So you, I, I would only do that, or I would only recommend my patients doing that if it's not going to affect, you know, how long they're going to live. Right.
0: That makes sense. Okay. Are there other IDH inhibitors? currently in development, and would that be similar to what's happening with split 3 inhibitors, like first-generation versus second-generation, where they might be more potent?
1: Um, I, I wouldn't say they're more potent. but that, So there, there is another IDH1 inhibitor that um, is being developed uh, by a company called Forma Therapeutics that they may have actually filed to, uh, to get it approved. Um, it's very similar to ibocidinib. Um I wouldn't say that it's a second generation drug. I think it's sort of, it's, it falls into the first generation category. Now, there's a different mm-hmm. um, IDH1 inhibitor being developed by um, a company called Loxo Oncology, which is a subsidiary of Eli Lilly. That is a second generation drug because um, as opposed to ibocydinib, it has activity against um, various um, IDH1 mutations that can develop while a patient is taking ibocidinib. So again, just to back up for a second. So imagine you're a patient, you're taking ibocidinib, and um, you know you do well, you go into remission, and then you relapse. So the question always becomes, well, why did the patient relapse? And what we've learned is that one of the re- reasons the patients can relapse is that the cell can actually develop mutations at the spot where the ibocidinib is supposed to bind, and those mutations keep the IVOSIDNib from binding into that spot so the IVOS new drug from uh, loxo oncology is said is said to um, overcome those resistance mutations so it's not that it's a more potent drug necessarily although it might be i'm not sure that's so important the potency of the drug but it has um, activity against the resistance mutations. And, and that's a drug that's uh, in clinical trials now for relapsed and refractory, IDH1 mutant AML.
0: So um, I also have a question about just the targeted drugs. Um, we've had a few shows now on different mutations, such as split 3 TP53, and now IDH. There seems to be quite a few targeted drugs to address these mutations, and they're being combined with other drugs for what you refer to as doublet or triplet regimens. So it seems a lot of progress is being made in this disease with the targeted drugs. But I'm curious, is in your opinion, is that translating to improved outcomes by achieving, by achieving longer remissions or getting more patients to transplant?
1: yeah i think it is i think it's definitely uh, leading to improved outcomes i mean certainly it, it's improving outcomes because you know it's just making people live longer even without a transplant um but then the other thing is that you know if you can you know like we talked about at the beginning with these small molecule drugs it's except you know i told you the the exception which is my patient is 87 years old but with most patients the, these drugs are not curative um but if you can then Take a patient who's gotten into remission with one of these drugs, and then get them to a stem cell transplant. The stem cell transplant potentially really, really is curative, and um, and uh, I think that's a that's a huge benefit for a patient, and certainly leading to improved outcomes.
0: Right. And I was curious: is is there any trials looking at sort of the standard inductions, seven plus three induction therapy? And adding ibrutinib or ensinitinib.
1: Yes, yes, there is. I mean, I was, was, uh, obviously
0: that would trial. be would well, be the you know younger patients, but
1: yeah. So we did a trial, um, a small trial, um, adding ibrutinib and ensinitinib to. 7 plus 3, which showed um, good results. It was a very small trial, so the, the results, you know, whether they're reproducible or not is, is, isn't the question. But I think what's exciting is that now in Europe, there is a large randomized phase 3 study um, that is uh, taking patients with IDH1 or IDH2 mutations, younger patients, and giving them induction chemotherapy either with ivosidenib or enasidenib or induction chemotherapy with placebo. And we're going to see, um, hopefully in the next 2 to 3 years, Um, whether adding on the targeted therapies to 7 plus 3 is is the way to go. So, yes, those trials are being done. That's great.
0: Okay, one last question I have um, before we open it up for caller questions. Um, I know that this is sort of a general question for you, but... um, AML is such a difficult and challenging disease, but I was curious if you could just tell us what sort of excites you most about the work that you do every day and what,
1: you know, keeps
0: you coming back every day and keeping at it.
1: Um, I think what really excites me is, is taking care of patients. I mean, fundamentally, that's what I, that's what I like to do, um, and it's, it's helping people get better from a disease that's really serious. You know, it's certainly helped me that over the course of my uh, career, I've seen these major advances in the treatment of acute myeloid leukemia, um, and that there are many other drugs on the horizon that are, are um, I think, going to um, continue to improve the outcome of patients with AML, um, but, you know, going, you know, being part of these patients' lives and, and helping them out and really making a difference in their life is sort of why I became a doctor in the first place, and that's what brings me back to work the research is important and I, I love the research but it's really in the service of um, of just helping people out
0: yes i i I would agree in that I you know my husband uh, was diagnosed with CML and it morphed into Aml in 2017 uh, he passed in early 2018 and I know just since 2017 there's been I think, nine drugs introduced, which is pretty amazing. So um, while, you know, it can be, you know, a very challenging prognosis, um, I see there's just a lot of hope on the on the horizon. So I hope that that gives people a feeling of hope um, as well. So, um, okay, let's see. I'm going to open up the lines for caller questions at this point and let's see if you have questions about anything Dr. Stein discussed today you can call into 515-602-9728 and once you're on the call and ready to ask your question press 1 on your keypad and I'll just give it a minute see any questions that come through okay it looks like we have a call and it ends with a question that uh, is coming in from 1704 it ends in 1704 so I'm going to unmute you and you can go ahead and ask your question. Uh, go ahead, caller. That ends in 1704.
1: Hi, doctor. Uh, just a quick question. I was wondering for your one patient that's been on, um, i was sending them for many years, is that patient on monotherapy or uh, combo therapy? Or has there been changes over the, the time? Uh, that's a patient who's on monotherapy. So she has been Got on it. monotherapy uh, with relapse and refractory disease for all those years. Okay,
0: great. Thank you. Okay, thanks for your question. Let's see if there's any other questions. Okay, there's a call. Okay, there's a call coming in from uh, eleven one one five nine. That ends in one one five nine. I'm gonna unmute you. Okay, go ahead.
1: Hi, doctor. Um, can you talk more about the length of time people are on ivermectin? If you mentioned your patient was on it for ten years, so
0: do patients typically stay on the drug for as long as they are responding?
1: Uh, Yeah, so that's a good question. So for patients who would typically stay on IVOS, well, it depends what the goal is. So um, if you had a patient who was, if I had a patient, let's say, who's eligible for a stem cell transplant, and if I put them on IVOS, and they got into remission, I would, all else being equal, and there are a lot of variables here, but all else being equal, I'd probably um, recommend they have a stem cell transplant once they got into remission. But for older patients who might not uh, – relapse and refractory patients, that is – who might not, um, you know, be a candidate for a stem cell transplant just because they're of their age um, or, or because they've got other medical conditions that, that make it difficult, those patients, yeah, you would keep them on nib until um, – uh, either until it stopped – basically until it stopped working, and hopefully it, it never stops working. Um, I wouldn't play around with switching things. My general philosophy is that if it's not broken, don't fix it. So if, if something's working, then, uh, then I just keep it going until it stops working.
0: Thank you. Okay. Uh, looks like we have... One more call from the end in 1113, and I will unmute you. Uh, go ahead, caller. Hi. Um, so my question is, I have a side nerve being used at all as maintenance therapy after transplant?
1: Yeah. So is it, um, is it being used as, as uh, maintenance therapy after transplant? Um, it is, so maintenance therapy, just for those of you who don't know, maintenance therapy is, let's say you've had a transplant and you don't have any evidence of leukemia. Does it, is it an effective strategy to just give someone nib with the hope that that will keep any leukemia from coming back? It's not FDA approved for that indication. I think there are people who do give nib as maintenance therapy. They're, was a clinical trial that was looking at the benefit of ibocidinib as a maintenance therapy. And it really gets down to the question, you know, the the issue I came up with, I, I brought up before, which is, you know, how many patients are you, who, who needs ibocidinib as maintenance therapy and who are you just giving a medication to that maybe they were never going to relapse anyway. Um, and, and that's the the important question that needs to be answered. Having said that, yes, there are people who are getting ibocidinib as maintenance therapy and I would, you know, if, if anyone is considering that approach, I would I would um talk to their doctor about whether it might be right for them.
0: Okay, thank you. Okay, I think that's all the questions we have coming through. So I think we'll wrap it up for today. Uh, Dr. Stein, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're incredibly grateful for your generosity with your time and your willingness to share your expertise with us. We'd love to have you on the show again in the future to share updates on IDH inhibitors and your other clinical trials. We wish you all the best in your clinical practice and your research endeavors. So thank you very okay, much. thanks
1: so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. I hope
0: everyone, everyone had a great day, and thanks, everyone, for joining us. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Health Tree Podcast for AML. Join us next time to learn more about what's happening in AML research and what it means for you.